Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Wednesday, July 22nd. We begin with a COVID-19 catch-up with Dr. Craig Janney, Infectious Disease Specialist with the University of Calgary. We get Dr. Janney's thoughts on the city's upcoming mandatory mask bylaw and dispel some common coronavirus myths. On the topic of masks, we hear the story of a local company who made a pivot during the pandemic from focusing on luxury sleepwear to making high-tech, fashionable face masks. Next, we look at Tuesday's provincial announcement on the September return to school for students. We get reaction from Support Our Students Alberta and the Calgary Catholic School District. It's a case of criminals preying on people during a trying time. We speak with the Better Business Bureau on the latest scam making the rounds, a phony text involving the CERB tax program. Then we get the latest on the federal WE charity scandal. Abigail Beeman, Global News Ottawa correspondent, gives us an update on the many questions still looking for answers. And finally, how safe is our country when it comes to cybercrime? We speak to a cybersecurity expert who says high-tech hackers are real and a present threat. Coming up to 7.09 on the morning news, we always like the chance to catch up with Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. So it was a natural fit to reach out to Dr. Janney with so much to talk about right now when it comes to the coronavirus crisis. A date for schools reopening now on the calendar, mandatory masks in the city of Calgary, and uh, somewhat promising news on the vaccine front. So good morning to you, Dr. Janney. Good morning. Let's start with the announcement of mandatory masks uh, taking place on August 1st in our city. What are your thoughts on the announcement? I think we have to probably make this this unfortunate step, given that the numbers are continuing to rise here again in Alberta, and specifically here in Calgary, and most of this rise does appear to be attached to indoor activities in our community, whether it be restaurants or shopping, but also likely transit playing a, a bit of a role uh, with cramming people into a small space uh, indoors. So, um, you know, masks have been shown to be effective, that they're minimally uncomfortable, and, and uh, places where they have been used, they've been able to really lower viral numbers quite quickly. What about the argument, here's a text we got this morning, you know, I'm not sick, so if I keep a six-foot distance, I don't need to wear a mask. Yeah, I've seen the the argument a lot. The difficult part with this particular virus is that a substantial percentage of the people who have the virus are not quote-unquote sick. There are a lot of people who are asymptomatic, and we also believe that one of the key times for Spreading the virus are two or three days before you develop symptoms. So you may have been exposed, the virus is growing in your body, you don't yet feel sick, but this is the time period where you will be spreading the virus. So we have to look at measures or protective levels that keep those people who are feeling really well, who, who if they were sick or if they had symptoms, they would obviously choose to stay home, but they don't even know they've been exposed from further spreading the virus. And masks are an effective way of doing that. Yeah, but to that mask point, another uh, statement that I read was we're going way too far. There's only 93 people in the hospital right now, so it must be overkill. Like the hospitals have capacity, Dr. Janney. Yeah, uh, uh, once again, I've seen that argument, and I've also seen that argument raised uh, about a month and a half ago in a number of U.S. states that are now at 130% capacity in the intensive care units and reaching daily mortality records unfortunately so you're absolutely right with the numbers we have today it it does seem like overkill but the problem with the virus is things we do today lead to the numbers two weeks from now so if we wait until things get bad it is already too late to change direction on on the course of this virus so we have we have to be proactive we have to be working to bring these numbers back down in the community before we get back to a a situation where we were back in in march and april Okay, so let's go towards the school issue a little bit here. And, you know, someone texted in, well, back in 2009, H1N1 was serious. Why didn't we shut the schools then? Yeah, another great question. So H1N1 was absolutely serious. Um, It was less uh, fatal than the current virus. Importantly, uh, we did have, uh, within development, so H1N1 was identified in early March, by that September, October, we had vaccines distributed among Canadians. So because it was an influenza vaccine, we could turn around and release a new version of the flu vaccine within a period of about four and a half to five months. We don't have that option right now with coronavirus. If we knew a vaccine would be available in October, we could approach the school system a little differently than we we were this go-round, where we're basing it on current community numbers and likelihood of spread.
What are your thoughts, by the way? We know as of yesterday, the announcement made September 1st, going back to school. Uh, you know, just a couple of restrictions, uh, plan one out of a potential three. Uh, what are your thoughts in the timing and uh, what protocols uh, the government is uh, talking about for the uh, school-age kids? Well, I think based on the numbers we have in the community today, so looking at uh, the, that you know, daily infection rate of about 100, maybe a little bit more throughout the province, it's probably a, a very safe decision to go back to schools. I think the real question becomes, what is our daily viral count in September and October? So, you know, based on the numbers today, I think this is the right decision. We, we do want to get kids back in the classroom for a number of reasons, um, chiefly, obviously, education. But there's a lot of social and other skills that the kids are learning in school. I think what we just have to unfortunately be prepared for is that if things change, specifically if things change within a regional or, or, or a locale hotspot, we may have to step back in and bring additional restrictions in or uh, worst case scenario, uh, closures even temporarily, depending on the actual viral numbers in the community. So where we are today, so far so good. Unfortunately, we are seeing a, a, a slow upward trend and we really don't know where that's going to lead us in uh, you know, late fall, early winter. So someone just texted in, why then are the kids not supposed to wear masks in school? Yeah, it's a, another great question. So the, the data is really coming out uh, quite clearly from, from a number of international studies where kids have gone back to school. And it seems like the younger the kids are, the more protected they are, and also the more difficult they, they seem to have spreading the virus. When we get up to the, the levels of, of sort of junior high, high school, the, there is an increased risk of viral spread, and it looks as though you know, high school age kids would be able to spread the virus to the same extent as adults. And we may have to look at things such as masks, again, as the numbers in the community change. Right now, the plan is based on physical separation, staggered opening times, so we don't have a lot of kids in the hall at one uh, moment um, as stagger drop-off pickup. So we're hoping that these will be enough to start the system. But I'm really um, optimistic that we, we have some flexibility that as the, the situation changes, we're able to respond to it in an effective manner. We had a, another question having to do with mandatory masks that, that wasn't detailed in the provincial release. So I'm wondering if, not that you're speaking for the province, uh, but do you know if it falls under the same criteria? The question was, if I don't wear a mask, but where a face shield is, is that the same? Uh, it's a great question. I, unfortunately, I, I do, I'm not privy to, to the actual uh, details in the release yet. Um, but we have seen that face shields are effective in, in disease control. So, so my hope would be that you, you'd be able to make that rational argument. But I'm not entirely clear on what was covered un, under the mandate. Dr. Janney, do you know what the sort of quickest recovery time has been or, or average coming uh, you know, out of COVID? So, because we know it can be months and months, but is there a, a faster timeline that you've heard? Yeah, I, I think there are a number of people that, that ones getting mild symptoms are recovering in you know, four to seven days kind of thing. The, the guideline is unless you, you have um, um, uh, ongoing symptoms, it's 10 days after diagnosis. So it gives you that you should be self-isolating. So that gives you an idea of how long uh, the actual virus is being released from your body. So it, 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 for most people, the ones that are not hospitalized, it, it obviously is a, a severe illness. They don't feel good, um, but, but they do recover in about a week or so. We've had this one before, but I want to get some clarification because it keeps coming back. The numbers of deaths worldwide are being exaggerated. I've heard that during the pandemic, all deaths are considered COVID-19 deaths. So there are jurisdictions in the world where that may be the case. There may be smaller countries that, that simply do not have the testing capacity. In Canada, that's not the case. So, so we, are, we are only counting confirmed COVID-19 positive uh, deaths within, within those statistics. Um, the easiest way for us to, to get a, a better sense as to what COVID-19 is doing is we can look at the increase in deaths within a, a given period, so, so a given month this year, versus the historic average of the last five years. And we see without any uh, question in Canada, in Europe, in the U.S., that unfortunately the number of Canadians lost this year is above anything we've seen before. So that there is a significant increase in the loss of life due to the presence of this virus in our community. Dr. Janney, lots more questions rolling in. Can we keep you over for a couple more minutes? Sure, yes. Okay, hold on tight. That is uh, infectious disease specialist Dr. Craig Janney. He'll be back uh, just after the commercial break. 717 helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, a community connected to its city.
They say necessity is the mother of invention, and that's certainly true these days. COVID-19 has forced a number of businesses to pivot, and Calgary-based luxury sleepwear company Lusame is one of them. Joining us is Lusame CEO Laura Smith to explain. Good morning, Laura. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Okay, so the face mask now, really, it's an essential piece of our wardrobe, isn't it? So tell us how you and your team got together to create the one that you've come up with. Will do. Uh, Lusame is a technical luxury pajama company. What makes us special is our innovation. We have Zero Techs, which powers the innovation for Lusame. It is a very sophisticated textile innovation. So after COVID hit, uh, right away, it was actually my son's idea who said, you know, mom, we have to figure out a way to help. We have to do something. We feel helpless during this. So got together with the very advanced um, team of textile engineers, their PhD level overseas at one of the best textile mills and said, hey guys, we need to pivot as we're all saying these days and we need to come up with a, a fabric and then ultimately a mask that is the marriage of the most technically protective while also being comfortable. So put the challenge out there, had lots of calls, saw a lot of fabrics, and then ultimately landed on the Zerotex protective comfort mask being breathable and a high level of protection, the highest level. You can, you can test this in labs. Um, and then we just launched a week ago, and the response has been fantastic. Okay, so let's, and by the way, I'm wearing the mask right now as we do this interview. Let's talk about the timing from conception to delivery of these masks, which I'm wearing right now. How long did something like that take? It took exactly three months before we had a prototype that we loved. And as soon as we had the prototype at such a big mill, they turned it around really quickly in terms of production. Um, and then we received them in Canada, the first uh, production run a week and a half ago. Our team got up a website literally in 48 hours, and we were in market um, selling them as of last weekend. So about three months. Laura, I love this that, you know, highest protective value. So, I mean, it's important right now, right? We're all trying to be as safe as we possibly can. And and there are lots of masks out there and, and some are great and some are good and some are not so good. So what is it about this with this fabric and this technology? Well, the technology, our fabric technology, starts at the fiber level, the type of fibers that we're using. It's a polycotton blend. We didn't want to use chemicals. No one wants chemicals uh, finished near their face. So um, the type of fiber that we were used, the knitting that we used um, to engineer the fabric, um, nothing can get through the face of the fabric, not a water drop, not a small molecule. So if you're wearing it properly um, with the nose wire, the comfort, and it's, it's full covering your nose and mouth nothing is getting in but part of the problems with masks with a high protective value or if they use a chemical finish it's very difficult to breathe so for people wearing these all day and we I talk to hundreds of people who have to wear masks all day just the sore throat not getting enough oxygen to the brain really a struggle to work all day wearing these so we wanted it to be breathable um, while also being protective so what makes ours special is the marriage of the comfort breathability and protection the tech aside i I can adjust each individual strap and i have a huge head (laughs) he does something as simple as adjustable straps I, i think that'll be a bonus for a lot of people we had a checklist. It needed to be all of these things. And, you know, I, for one, have to wear glasses to work, and I couldn't stand how it was fogging up. Yes. So we threw a little loophole at our team overseas at the last minute. It's like, hey, all these things you're doing, it also has to be fog-resistant to wearing glasses all day. So that um, last-minute enhancement was done really quickly, and here we are. How can we order these masks, Laura? Zerotex.com is the um, the place to order the masks, and uh, we ship all over. Obviously, we're Calgary-based, but we can ship all over the world. And it's X-I-R-O-T-E-X, X-I-R-S-O, but pronounced Zerotex. That's right. That's it. Love it. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time, and congrats, Calgary Company, doing something that's great. Thank you so much, you guys. Appreciate it. That's Laura Smith, Lusame CEO. Businesses pivoting to keep busy during this time, a great idea, as is this. For Park to Go Airport Parking with Value Valet, thanking you for parking it at home at this time to help flatten the curve. Please keep safe.
8-11 on the morning news. Yesterday, Premier Jason Kenney and Education Minister Adriana LaGrange joined Dr. Dina Hinshaw for an update on Alberta's school reentry plan for the 2020-21 school year. We get a reaction right now from Barb Selva, and she is spokeswoman for Support Our Students Alberta. Good morning to you, Barb. Good morning. We had the three-pronged, well, three different lanes we could have chosen from, well, the province could have. They uh, chose lane one, which is uh, almost back to normal. What did you think of the plan that you heard? Uh, We anticipated a scenario one call as soon as she described the three scenarios. We know that this is basically a decision that's based more on the economy, actually, than the health or education of students and education workers. So we weren't surprised that it's a scenario one. We're disappointed. We think that kids can go back to school safely, but it would require a significant influx of funding and resources in order to make that safe. And unfortunately, there has been no additional resources uh, put into the system to make that the case. So how, Barb, then do schools add in extra cleaning protocols, for example, like if they have to bring in extra custodians or, you know, even more hand sanitizer, that sort of thing? Who, who covers that cost? So what the minister has indicated is that it's that every school board has within their already designated budgets, which she made back in February, the ability to, to reallocate funding. And so school boards are going to have to play a shell game and rearrange funding. And of course, as we know in other situations, not just with COVID, that schools that are in higher socioeconomic um, neighbourhoods are will be able to fundraise. And so we're going to see that casino money, fundraising money, parents making donations, we're going to see a disparity there in which schools are able to fundraise for things like Lysol wipes. Well, devil's advocate, uh, you know, could you not uh, say that there aren't, there won't be extracurricular activities anyway, like, you know, sports and clubs that these monies may have gone to uh, because of COVID-19 so they can go to the cleaning supplies? Uh, that would be true in situations in, in neighborhoods and in communities where there is already a high socioeconomic status, but there are communities that didn't have that to be in with. Secondly, you know, it doesn't take away from the fact that there are going to be classes with no ventilation, we simply don't have the infrastructure to allow for the conditions under which Dr. Dina Hinshaw said that schools should be operating. We cannot have um, physical distancing and not affect class sizes. You can't do both. We need a class size cap. You can't put 30 kids in a room meant for 20 and still socially distance. It's also just as dangerous to put those 30 kids in a classroom with windows that don't function or a classroom with no windows at all. So, you know, it's a recipe for disaster. Certainly, it's not that kids couldn't go back. Kids could go back. It has to be under the right conditions, and those right conditions require a significant um, injection of additional funding. Curious about your thoughts on masks, Barb, because, you know, the city mandating masks in public spaces, and yet this uh, decision about schools is provincial, and the province, Jason Kenney and Adriana LaGrange, not specifying that anybody in the school has to wear a mask. No, and it's interesting, you know, they're saying that um, they're not preventing anyone from doing it, but what they're really doing is um, abdicating themselves of their responsibility to mandate that and to fund it. So, you know, we know and we've, we've heard increasing research that adolescents, so kids over 13, 14, 15 years old, do spread the virus like adults. Why? Because, I mean, if you've seen a 15-year-old boy, sometimes they're as big as an adult, but their cleanliness and their habits can be that of children. And so to... to to move forward and press forward under the impression that children don't get sick is a fallacy, and we should be mandating masks. We should be making sure that every school has a school nurse, um, that PPE is widely available, that every school has multiple thermometers, that we have child psychologists. These are all things that seem like no-brainers during a global pandemic. So would you have liked to, I mean, obviously the money aside, and that's something that we could you know, talk about for an entire week on this program, uh, funding when it comes to education, what else would you like to see? Because would we want to put it off for a few more months or wait for a vaccine? Or would you like to see a hybrid instead? No, I, I think that there, there could have and should have been a plan around class size caps. That we should be, you know, the, the, the minister herself uh, pointed out that the Calgary Catholic, who you're going to have coming up soon, ran successful summer courses. And they did, but they ran them in schools that were operating at, you know, a tenth of the capacity yeah. population within their buildings. They had class sizes of 14 students. So we know class size helps. We can limit class sizes. Um, you know, we can have more outdoor times. We can have staggered entries. We can have uh, two or three days a week, a hybrid model with online learning. Um, all of those things are things that we could have been doing and looking towards other countries. When they talk about Denmark, Denmark has class size cap of 12 students per class. So we had since March 15th to be thinking about a, a reentry. That was almost six months ago. 
um, to just say that we're going to go back business as usual is quite frankly, a lazy and irresponsible plan. Just having a quick look, and it looks like over half the new cases in the past 24 hours are in people under the age of 19. So youth, we do need to worry about them. So sickness in kids, but that translates to sickness in teachers too. Is that something that the boards are prepared to, you know, have teachers come in to replace the ones that might be out sick? Well, that's absolutely correct. And and so um, there's two things with this. One is not only are kids going home to families of adults and grandparents and people who are immunocompromised, but so are teachers. And so we've already seen this in the long-term um, healthcare areas where rotating nurses and rotating staff actually carry the illness to other schools. So what are we doing to address the fact that substitute teachers who will be in high demand will be rotating from school to school to school to school? We already know from long-term healthcare centers what the consequences of that are. Who's addressing that issue? And I think secondly, we have to recognize that we have to stop looking at this virus as though it's very binary. It's, you know, either you get better or, or you, you, you know, quite unfortunately die from it. There is a gray area. Some people su- suffer very long-term lasting effects from this. And so we should be at all costs trying to avoid spreading it and spreading it quickly, having, you know, lots of kids mm-hmm. in a classroom for eight hours a day for 200 instructional days a year is dangerous. Thank you for your thoughts and your time this morning, Barb. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This is Barb Silva, spokeswoman for Support Our Students, Alberta. It's 817 helicopter traffic time for West District by Truman, Calgary's newest and best master planned community. Coming up on 820 now, and uh, now we're joined by Dr. Brian Zumlas, who's the chief superintendent with the Catholic School Board, to get that board's reaction to yesterday's school reopening plans. Good morning, Dr. Brian Zumlas. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. So from the Catholic School Board perspective, your thoughts on yesterday's announcement and, and going in full on with, uh, you know, a few restrictions here and there, but otherwise wide open for all the kids to come back. Yeah, yesterday's announcement wasn't uh, surprising to us. Back in June, we were preparing for the most difficult scenario, and that was scenario two in our opinion. Uh, Scenario two is a partial resumption of school, and we've done scenario one. Scenario one is uh, basically normal with health measures, and so uh, for 135 years, we've done normal schooling in Calgary Catholic, so we are prepared for that, and the health measures um, that the government wants us to put in place with Alberta Health Services. We've been working hard with our staff for the past several months on what that could look like for us as well. So we're feeling pretty good about yesterday's announcement. Feeling good, and I'm guessing that it might be, a, you know, a school-by-school school basis, and it depends on the age of the kids, uh, some of the approaches and protocols that will be in place. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. It's not going to be easy. Um, you know, we're going to have to, we're educators, and it'll be our job to uh, work collaboratively with parents to educate our students on the new normal and what it uh, is like to live in a world of COVID-19. And so, um, you know, some of the details that uh, weren't, uh, that are documented on paper, but weren't really discussed yesterday had to do with physical distancing, where we're going to be trying our best to keep students two meters apart. But uh, when you get down and read the details in the document, uh, in many cases, two meters will not be possible. And so it'll be the greatest possible spacing is what the province is recommending. So in our classrooms, we're going to see spaces between kids. Is it going to be two meters? Probably not. But we're going to do our best to uh, try to keep them together in a cohort. So, Brian, how will you deal with the extra costs uh, in regards to hand sanitizer, for example, and substitute teachers who might need to be brought in when teachers get sick? Because that's going to be the reality. How will the board deal with that? So our board of trustees, they're the ones who approve our district's, uh, school district's budget. Uh, they were very proactive and uh, in next year's budget, there is a, a pool of money that ha- has been allocated to uh, look at the hiring of more uh, guest teachers, for example, so that uh, they're available to help when a teacher is off on, on leave. You know, as far as the adults within the building, I'm thinking about those teachers and, uh, you know, administration. Uh, we were reading in the literature that it looks like it would be optional uh, for mask wearing. Is that something that you guys are going to go with uh, on a case-by-case basis, or are you going to mandate masks for the teachers and admin? Yeah, at this point in time, we have ordered face shields for all of our staff. Uh, we also will be supplying them with a quantity of masks. Um, we prefer the face shields, and the reason why is because as educators, uh, a lot of nonverbal communication happens with facial mm-hmm. expressions as well as teaching students 
especially young students, uh, you know, alphabet sounds, letter recognition, and so all of that is transmitted by nonverbal. So they will have um, uh, face shields and masks to wear. Uh, at this point in time, we are not mandating masks. Okay, so but that the masks and shields for teachers provided by the board. Correct. Gotcha. Excellent. Thank you so much for the update. Appreciate your time this morning. You're welcome. You have a good day today. You too. That's Dr. Brian Zumlas, who's the chief superintendent with the Catholic School Board. At 608, Alberta continues to relaunch the economy. Organizations are using innovation to drive forward advancements in the energy industry. Calgary-based Exergy Solutions is one of the recipients of a $3 million funding pool from Alberta Innovates Digital Innovation in Clean Energy Program. And with all the details on what this means, we're joined this morning by Scott Hunter, Digital Solutions Manager of Exergy Solutions. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Sue. How are you? Excellent. Glad we could get you this morning. Thank you. Sorry for the problems with the phones yesterday, but we've got you now. So we want to hear all about Exergy and, uh, you know, what exactly you're going to be developing now that you've got this funding coming your way. So um, basically, you know, uh, Exergy Solutions DICE project is a, a development of a dynamic virtual reality digital twin that basically accelerates the development of training platforms and accelerates the path to commercialization. So, you know, traditional training simulators, uh, VR training simulators tend to be very scripted and sequential. So, for example, um, to explain it to, you know, in the layman's terms, uh, it would be like, you know, if you were developing a training simulator for getting in and operating a car, it would be, you know, getting your keys, opening the car, sitting down, putting your keys in ignition, very sequential, mm-hmm. not a lot of room for kind of experimenting um well you know our dvr training simulator is basically a a choose your own adventure training simulator and i know i'm dating myself by making that reference but (laughs) we all remember those those books um you know the operator trainees will have a multitude of choices on how to operate the facility and those actions will in turn have a multitude of physical real world reactions in the vr environment um yeah so that's basically why ours is a little bit different than uh, conventional ones you know, Scott, why is this important to the industry? Why is it important uh, that the employees hit the ground running and don't, you know, do more training on the job? Well, it's all about, um, I mean, obviously the industry is uh, struggling right now and facing some challenges and introducing solutions like this where essentially we are, you know, compressing the time it takes to get operators up and running and trained. Um, and by doing that, we're accelerating the path to commercialization we can get these facilities up and running faster and more importantly by proper training and training essentially in in a real world like never before safer we can have these facilities up and running quicker safer and that's really the goal for those that don't work in oil and gas and maybe don't understand some of this terminology me being one of them operators (laughs) facilities what does that exactly mean so, I mean, obviously there are folks um, that have to operate these facilities. So when they're running, um, there's constantly people there that need to make sure they're running safely. Um, so with that being said, um, conventional training methods have been, you know, um, manuals, you're reading, or, um, uh, you know, computer-based learning. But the way that you know, the VR stuff is different, is that uh, the engagement level is through the roof. You cannot help not being engaged. I mean, you are there, uh, you're fully immersed, you're, ne- you're never bored. Uh, and essentially, you know, we, we all learn by doing. The studies have shown time and time again that we all learn by doing. Reading is great, the retention level is great, but studies have shown, like I said, that if you do something, you are going to learn it mm-hmm. quicker, better, faster. So, yeah, that's, you know, that's kind of that, that end of that, yeah. So, Scott, uh, this type of technology, would this be something, I know it's proprietary to what you guys do, would uh, different companies send them to Exergy, or would this be something that you'd, you know, kind of have a patent on and uh, farm out to different companies who could use the DICE technology? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's no, no, not really patent-based at all, um, and it's not really, I guess, uh, per se, DICE technology. There are um, other companies that are starting to do this, Mm -hmm. but it's really a plug and play aspect. Like once we've built the back end of it and and we were starting to do it, we could lift this and shift this to other clients, other industries. It doesn't have to be energy. 
it's really applicable across the board. Cool concept. So, I mean, really, in the end, it keeps your facilities and your employees safe, but it also keeps all of us safe as well outside of the facilities, knowing that they're being run properly and, and everybody knows what to do in certain scenarios. Absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, I'll, I'll briefly talk about it, too. I mean, more importantly, and we've kind of presented this as a value proposition pre-COVID, but nowadays you can train people remotely. You right. don't have you don't have to go to site anymore. Um, and it's even more applicable nowadays. And we're seeing a major uh, uh, insurgence of requests for this type of stuff because, you know, traditionally you'd have to, you know, get on a plane. I mean, I mean, I've done it hundreds of times. You get up at 4 a.m. You get to the airport, you get on the plane. For instance, you fly up to Fort McMurray, get off the plane, you get in your car, your rental car, you fly to site, you go through orientation, and boom, boom. And by the time you're actually doing work with someone there, it's 12 or 1 in the afternoon and you're seven hours in. Well, with this type of, you know, digital solution, you can put on a headset, someone at site can put on a headset, and with an instant, you're collaborating together in the site from Calgary, from anywhere in the world with multiple people, and you're doing the work within seconds and you're out in two hours and you're, you know, you're back at home at five o'clock for kids hockey practice and you're not flying home at 9 PM at night. Um, and most, more importantly, you're not, you're not on a plane and you're not producing greenhouse gases. So mm-hmm. that's another big advantage. What has response been to this, Scott? Because it, it sounds uh, very interesting and, and promising, but I'm wondering, for example, people who have been in the industry for a while, people in the know when it comes to the tech that you're talking about, what do they, what do they say about the experience? Um, you know, Early on, we would we would put people in these types of scenarios, and I um, mean, you guys have been to the VRK. Do you understand mm-hmm. the awe-inspiring? Oh my God, this is so immersive! And yeah. you know, their jaws drop. It's like, oh my God, that's amazing. Um, but then, you know, the follow-up question is, how is this going to make you know my life easier, safer, and how am I going to save money? And once you present those type of value propositions. Um, they get it. There's, there's a little resistance here and there because it takes time and it's, it's a new technology like everything else. But once they, they see it and you kind of spell it out and you can, you can basically show them data and analytics that they, you know, you're going to, you're going to save money and you're going to be able to operate your plant cheaper and, and, and safer. The response has been great. And two, you know, you, you get young people coming into the industry that, you know, tech is, is what they're all about. So, and as the, our energy world, especially in Alberta, shifts, this is a great way to be able to shift, shift with it and, mm-hmm. and to, you know, to help young people coming in hands-on learning, as you say. So maybe some of the older players, not necessarily as much in favor, but I would think it'll be something that's key going forward. Yeah, that's a great comment. I mean, what we've seen uh, over the past few years and decade is, and we've all heard it, the baby boomers are leaving. Um, knowledge transfer is a huge gap right now. So these folks that have been operating facilities or even just in our industry and other industries in general, they're leaving. And they're leaving with a lot of information in their head. Um, so that knowledge transfer is very difficult. Uh, with these type of training modules, we can incorporate that kind of knowledge and have people get up to speed quicker. And to your point, um, you know, the industry has taken a lot of flack, obviously, um, but, you know, we are making a lot of efforts and, and, and you know, digital and, you know, uh, mechanical and engineering solutions to try and make it better. Um, and to your point, we need to engage the youth. We need to engage these people coming up. And with these types of technologies, it's, it's exciting. It, it's it's not necessarily, you know, uh, your mom's and dad's engineering and design world. Like, yeah. uh, it, 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 it's, it's, it's amazing. And we get a lot of young people through and we work with, you know, um, organizations like uh, the UFC. And, uh, yeah, it's the future and it's, it's not going away. This is how we're going to be doing things and how we're going to be learning for many years to come. So it's a great time to get involved and get on board. Thank you for your time and telling us all about it, Scott. Yeah, no problem. That is Scott Hunter, Digital Solutions Manager of Exergy Solutions. 617, now it's time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Enjoy spectacular views of the city skyline and the Rocky Mountains.
Deerfoot heading off the QE2 is a smooth drive down towards Memorial. Northbound lanes out of the southeast, about nine minutes between Stony Trail and 17th Avenue. So we're off to a pretty good start this morning. If you're exiting off onto Memorial Drive towards the downtown core, expect that to be a nice smooth commute onto 4th Avenue downtown. Starting up in about a half an hour on 4th Avenue at 2nd Street Southwest, you're going to see a left lane closure. That'll be in place until 7 o'clock this evening. That'll be in place until 3 o'clock this afternoon. And also watch for various lane closures impacting both directions of 17th Avenue between McLeod and 14th Street. That's to help out with physical distancing on the sidewalks. Open a CIBC smart account and get $300 plus pay no monthly fee for up to 12 months. That's everyday smart from CIBC. Conditions apply. Learn more online. For the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Brady Howard. 641 on the morning news. Scammers have ramped up their efforts during the COVID-19 pandemic. CERB, Canadian Emergency Response Benefit Text Message Scams, and also mysterious Amazon packages delivered to your door. With tips on how to identify scams, we're joined by communications specialist with the Better Business Bureau serving Southern Alberta and East Kootenai, uh, Shauna K. Thomas. Good morning to you, Shauna K. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for being here. It seems to me that the, the timing always seems to be when there's a disaster or something happening mm-hmm. in the world that's negative, the scammers come out. Has that been your experience that the, the scammers, uh, they like their timing when people are down and out? Unfortunately, that's what we're seeing whenever there's a crisis. They come out and they have no law. They go to the lowest point um, to fleece consumers of their money or their personal information. Like cockroaches out of the woodwork, Sean. Okay, (laughs) that's what it is. Okay, so talk to us about the the, uh, CERB text message scam to begin with, because there are a lot of people who are using this program. How do we know whether it's for real or not? So a lot of people are on this program, and the first thing we want to know is that the government is not going to be contacting you via WhatsApp or a text message or sending you an email link. The only way they'll send you an email link is if you had a conversation with them, a telephone conversation, and you, were, you wanted um, a form, for example. So they will send you a link to the form as a follow-up to your conversation. So if you're getting a text message, if you're getting an email saying it's from the government and you did not reach out to the government first, then you want to delete that. Um, the government, usually, if they're giving any kind of payment, they will send you an email or a text an email, not a text, that says um, there's a payment in your MyCRA account. You need to log in to check on that. Um, so they will not ask you to click on a link to enter personal information to verify your identity before you can get those payments. And if it's threatening as well, you do not want to engage in a conversation with that person or you do not want to engage a text, just delete it. So so the I guess the issue would be if you're expecting a payment and you get contacted this way, that's where the curiosity would, would probably get you. So is it best to personally reach out to the government on your own then? Yes, it's best to personally reach out to the government on your own. If you're curious, um, getting a text and you're very anxious, mm-hmm. you know, um, to get that payment, reach out to the government on your own or check your MyCRA account. Usually that's where you'll get your updates. You won't be asked to click on a link in a text. So that's a definite no-no. Just delete that text. It's just a phishing scam that's trying to get your personal information that can be used to steal your identity or if there is any kind of credit card information entered, can be used to make payments. Okay, so that one, we should hopefully be aware of that now and be a little more, you know, on the ball when it comes to CERB text messages. What about this Amazon packages delivered to your door scam? What, what are they trying to accomplish here? Yeah, so for this one, we call it Amazon brushing scam. And I know lots of us, we like to see the Amazon packages rolling in after shopping online. But these are not packages that you, you are particularly excited about. And that's because you didn't order them. And yet they're delivered to you. There's no return address except that of Amazon. And you can get just random things, humidifier. I've heard, I've seen reports of people getting a hat, um, hand warmer, just random things. It's usually third-party foreign sellers who gain access to your account. And then they make the purchase, uh, making it seem as if you made that legitimate purchase because they want to place reviews on their products or on their company. Um, so they want to make sure that it seems like it's a verified buyer. Um, it's dangerous because it definitely suggests that somebody has access to your Amazon account and they may have access to your personal information if your credit card is linked to your Amazon account. So you want to be checking on your Amazon um, cart. You also want to be checking on your account, your, your credit card statements to make sure that there's no purchase that you're not aware of. But generally, you're not charged for these odd items that show up, but it's more about a security breach. Is that right? 
Well, actually, you, we got a report um, just yesterday. There was one consumer whose credit card was on their Amazon account, and they used that person's credit card to make the payment. So you can be charged, but when you are, reach out to Amazon, let them know it's not a legitimate purchase, and they will deal with it from there. Usually there's um, um, recourse for that, so just reach out to Amazon if you did not make that purchase. And you want to make sure you're changing your passwords, too, because the fact that they have that information, they have access to your account, right? Um, and you can also go into your financial institution and change your credit card. And we're getting more calls about this, more reports about this, so be on the lookout for it. Jeez, just another reminder, we've got to keep control and keep a close eye on our bank accounts, on anywhere we order from. Really great reminders. Thanks for joining us, Shauna Kay. Definitely. Thanks for having me, Sue. That's Shauna Kay Thomas, communications specialist with the BBB in Southern Alberta. Time now for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, Calgary's last and best master plan community inside the Stony Trail Ring Road. 619 now on your Wednesday morning. Sue and Andrew with you. Texts in early this morning. Mm -hmm. Text line's always open for you. 403-974-8255. Maybe you want to comment on what happened yesterday. Two big pieces of news that we know the kids are going back. Within hours of one another. We know the kids are going back in September to school. Um, Things will look a little bit different, but overall, it's back to school for everybody. And we also know that as of August 1st, face masks are going to be implemented in any public spaces. And, you know, the schools, there was a one, two, three choice. One, basic back to normal, underscoring basically because there will be protocols, there will be cleaning, there mm-hmm. will be masks and cohorts. But it wasn't part two, which was a hybrid, or, or number three, which is continuing from home. The ma- the mandatory masks was a, a complete 180 as far as... We spoke with Mayor Nenshi on Friday. And he didn't want to do it. He was saying, you know, it looks like transit. We're really going to push hard for transit and public transportation. Mm-hmm. And we thought... That makes sense, right? You're all shoved into one tiny little tight area. It makes sense to wear a mask. And a a chance to expand down the road. We could have. Nope. August 1st, it will be mandatory in all public spaces, public transportation. The question comes uh, about restaurants time and time again. Right. Still, You can still eat at a restaurant. They're saying as you walk in, maybe the foyer, maybe when you run to the washroom, mask on. But when you're eating... You can take the mask off. <laughs> yes, as is, as would be but the normal August, thing August to do. August 1st is the weird thing to yeah, me. Yeah, why like, not do it right away? Hey, if you're going to implement it and we've got a problem right now with numbers starting to increase, why not just put it in place as of Monday morning? Well, I, All oh, right. Here we go. Okay, uh, hey, we are managed to track down Abigail uh, Beeman. We've been waiting to check in with her. Uh, she's Global's Ottawa correspondent, of course, and has the latest on the WE scandal and the controversy. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. So another day, another development coming out of Ottawa. What happened yesterday and then which minister is taking the hot seat today? Well, I will start with today. Uh, the excitement uh, that may come this afternoon, that's Finance Minister Bill Morneau, who will testify at the Finance Committee. We know that Bill Morneau is also in, under investigation by the Ethics Commissioner. That's in addition to the uh, investigation uh, being carried out into the Prime Minister. We also know, I should mention, that uh, Bill Morneau has apologized, uh, saying that he should have recused himself from Cabinet discussions uh, in connection with we, and that's uh, because he has a daughter who works for the organization. So expect lots of questions from MPs and a grilling from opposition MPs uh, at committee this afternoon. As for yesterday's testimony, so we're talking about the same committee, finance, uh, and Canada's top bureaucrat was in the hot seat. So that's a man named Ian Shugart. Uh, His title is clerk of the PCO, the Privy Council Office. And a few interesting things came out of his testimony. Uh, Shugart said that as far as he is aware, there was no deep dive done into the finances of the WE charity before the decision to to grant them this deal. Uh, He also said that as far as as he could see it, there would be no way for the prime minister and the finance minister not to have been involved in the development and approval of this $900 million program because of its size and scope. But he also went on to say uh, that he wasn't passing any judgment on the, the, their comments about how they should have recused themselves. And one other thing that I would note is he seemed to be defending the prime minister by pointing out that the prime minister's connections with we were really in the public domain. They were well known. And Ian Shugart saying that uh, when you deal with a potential conflict of interest disclosure is a big part of that but he said he didn't cross his mind that anything needed to be disclosed because as he said it was already in the public eye so an interesting few hours of testimony yesterday and there will be many hours of testimony to, to hear today doesn't appear to be going away anytime soon thank you for your time this morning abigail thanks that is abigail beeman global's ottawa correspondent
9.09 on the morning news. According to intelligent agencies in Canada, the UK and the US, a hacking group tried to steal COVID-19 related vaccine research during the pandemic. With more details on the topic, we're joined by cybersecurity expert Tony Anscombe. Good morning to you, Tony. Hey, good morning. Tony, you know, years ago, well, up until very recent times, when we would talk about defending a nation, it would be, you know, tanks, submarines and aircrafts. Should we be funneling more of that money toward IT and uh, cybersecurity experts? Well, I think in the background, your governments already are funneling a, a lot of that money towards digital warfare and protecting digital assets. So this, is, this has been here for a while? Absolutely, yes. How does something like this apply to us, the average Joe and Jill Blow, and, and does it? I mean, is it something that we need to be concerned about in terms of our own everyday lives? Well, there are several different types of cyber criminal. I mean, there's cyber criminals that look for extraction of information and intellectual property uh, for you know a, a longer-term gain. And then there's, I would say, the more immediate cyber criminals that attack you and I. Uh, with ransomware or phishing scams and such like. And in this case, this was a a longer-term group called, uh, well, in fact, they run under several names, APT29, or they're also known as the Dukes or Cozy Bear. So with information like this, if if somebody tries to scam a smaller company or an individual, they might be trying to shake them down for some money or, or get some of their financial info so they can access bank accounts and financial institutions. But something like this, I understand it's difficult to monetize information you'd steal, whether or not it's a, a vaccine um, or, or to use that data that's been gained. So tell, tell us what the motivation would be. Would it be just a disruption? Well, I'm very curious about the motivation in this particular attack as well, because uh, it's not like you could take the information stolen and steal uh, and sell it on the dark web because who would purchase it? You know, it? When you produce a drug, you have to show that you have the background research and the clinical trials, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, so nobody's going to license a drug of, from stolen information. I mean, could it be that it's that somebody wants to cause mistrust um, when a vaccine is eventually released? You could cause mistrust by showing the clinical research data, or is it that they just wanted to further their own research? Which do you think it is, Tony? What do you think? I I think it's likely that somebody was testing to see whether they could access a network like that, and it's probably to see how far a vaccine and the research is actually, uh, you know, how how far that's actually Mm. been, uh, been established. Tony, when, it, when it's physical warfare, for example, or espionage, and we can, you know, see an agent or, or see these uh, weapons of, of mass destruction, that's one thing. But we cannot see who's behind this. Time and time again, we hear it's Russia. Is, is that the only nation that, that is, uh, has actors in this arena, or is it other nations? Well, I'm not going to get into attribution towards a specific country. Uh, I mean, the report published by the three security agencies uh, gives some attribution there, but even they use the word almost certainly. So it's very difficult to actually attribute a, a, digi- a cyber criminal group like this actually to any particular nation state. It's fascinating, and uh, hopefully it, it's, it's taught a lot of people a, a lot of lessons. So thanks so much for joining us with your perspective, Tony. Thank you. That's Tony Anscombe, a cybersecurity expert. I don't know. I mean, it, it sounds very scary to me. On the personal level, that's one thing, but it seems like people can access it, well, from anywhere, uh, in, a, in a basement in a country across the uh, other side of the world. Mm-hmm. You can access information on our side of the world and vice versa. And to create confusion and, yeah. you know, upset it, we've got enough of that going on in the world. So you can see why that would be their their target, right, is to, is to get you know, more people upset and, and in a tiz and, and in non-trusting of so many other things because we're, we're lacking in trust a lot these days as is. Yeah, no, that's the thing, right? And uh, the disruption part is uh, what I've heard time and time again is what's behind uh, interrupting elections and mm-hmm. changing directions and misinformation uh, just to keep people not at ease. And you put that question in the back of somebody's minds, it, it could change the way they vote, for example. So in this case, yeah, if it discredits and, and things are leaked about a vaccine, 
that could cause uh, you know some hysteria surrounding it. Let's hope the government has learned uh, a lesson from this and they're uh, putting in a lot more safety protocols. Hey, let's get to some of the texts because we have a kajillion and kajillion literally exactly. uh, we have so many texts coming in and we're talking about masks today and people are passionate on both sides of the aisle. Uh, this person saying, um, my family in the UK now free to do everything. Their cases have not risen. Our draconian measures are just preventing the inevitable that at some point we'll all get it and can move on from this horrid time in history. This person here says, so will we keep our borders closed forever, keep masks forever, lose what makes us social animals? This is not worth our humanity. There uh, wasn't always a herd immunity for the cold, but it's commonplace now. Yeah, this isn't the cold, though. People don't die from the cold. And do you really want our borders open right now? Do you want Americans to be able to free flow into Canada? I don't think most people want that. In fact, we know from stats and data that uh, most people are quite happy and and convinced that the border should remain closed for for the next while anyway. Absolutely. This one here says, can we stop calling this an outbreak and a surge in cases? We've increased testing. It's hospitalizations and deaths we need to only concern ourselves with. So the curve is uh, so flat, it's inverted. We need the healthy people getting immunity. Why is everyone so fearful? It's a good thing people are getting mild cases. Well, you know, when we say surgeon Except cases... Except for the ones who are dying. There's Yeah, and I believe it was like less than 400 um, two weeks ago. Now we're over 1,100. Yeah. So we have to follow... Danielle was talking about the markers for masks and when we, you know, can really let our guard down. The markers are we've almost tripled in the number of active cases in the province. Mm-hmm. You have to have some kind of a measure, and that's why this decision was made, I'm sure. Uh, this person saying, I was in Costco at the start. They ha- I had very good confidence in their protocols. I was in two days ago and have never felt as uneasy as I do now, despite wearing my own mask and practically bathing in sanitizer, wiping down the merchandise and changing my clothes. Tighten up and again, just wear a damn mask. It's not an assault on your liberties. It is effective. Uh, this is assuming that, uh, you know, people are intelligent. That can be a dangerous assumption sometimes because the maskless people this person has observed seem to be, it uh, seems that they have given up or displaying their woke scandemic attitudes at my peril. And that's why I, I don't believe it. I'm a sheeple. I don't believe it's government control. I believe we have the lowest common denominator it because not everybody's going to do it. This is, this is a reflection of that. This text here, I'm in favor of wearing masks in all public places, especially if there's a risk that distancing cannot be maintained. I have parents in their mid-80s that still live in their own home. I believe that the more people that wear masks, the lower the risk of transmission will be, and, and that's proven by science, by the way. I think it's important to follow this policy now before we have an even greater problem. That's from Jack. COVID-19 is stealthy. It's prudent to cover your mouth indoors in public. It's the least a responsible citizen can do. Perseverance until a vaccine. Whether or not it's masks or the reopening, the announcement yesterday uh, from the provincial government going back for stream number one, which is as close to normal as possible in that first week of September. Whatever your thoughts are, we'd love to hear from you. Text line always open at 403. 974-8255. 974-8255. It's 917 now. It's time for helicopter traffic, and it's brought to you by West District by Truman. Main Street's highlight 20-foot sidewalks and integrated bike paths. Haven't been able to get eyes on southbound Deerfoot approaching Glenmore. We're seeing a really big backup. You're stop and go from about Pagan Trail, so it'll be at least five extra minutes to get through there. We're hearing there might be debris on the roadway, so extra caution heading through. North Valleys of Deerfoot, though, are sitting problem and delay-free all the way up to 17th Avenue. And still have emergency crews on scene to a collision westbound Stony Trail approaching Harvest Hills Boulevard blocking off the right lane. I am seeing a small slowdown there, but nothing too major. Tonight's Lotto 649 draw is an estimated $17 million plus the guaranteed $1 million prize. $17 million, get that Lotto 649 feeling. For the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Brady Howard.